So good evening everybody. Once again, this is Value Nigeria Podcast. It's a pleasure to bring this podcast to you per time. Um, I trust your week has been brilliant. I trust everything has gone on very fine. Um, in the same vein uh, of what we've been doing all along, which is to bring experts in the finance industry to share their ideas, to share of their experience, uh, all in a bid to help the retail investor improve their investing practice. We have a guest in our today's episode as well. Uh, my guest has a background in science, as we'll get to hear, and um, he would share with us why and how he was able to switch from this science background even into investing, into core investing. Um, he's had vast experience in risk management, in risk analysis, and uh, I hope that the bulk of our discussion today will be about analyzing risk and how the retail investor can go about um, accounting for risk even in their daily investing practice. Uh, my guest today is also passionate about financial education, and we'll get to talk about that along the line as well. So my guest today on the podcast is Caleb Uwe, and it's a pleasure to have Thank him on the, on the podcast. Um, do you just want to say hello to the listeners of the podcast? Yeah, hello. Uh, the pleasure is mine. I'm happy to be with you. Thank you for the invite, and it's an honor to be here. Thanks. Amazing. Um, I, I remember coming across contents from of yours on um, LinkedIn. Uh, it's the educational session you have for the candidates of the CFA exam, and it, it was a very rich session. I had a lovely time watching uh, that interview that you had with some guests. Uh, do you mind just sharing with listeners a little bit about your background, uh, personal background, educational background, and professional background? Um, so, thank you. Um, my name is Caleb Fuwe. I... I'm a Nigerian, and um, personal, professional, and education. Okay, let's start from personal. Currently, I reside in the United Kingdom. I'm married. Thank you. And um, professional, I currently work with one of the biggest pension fund managers in the United Kingdom. That's um, USS is the biggest private pension company in the United Kingdom. I work with the investment management arm. I work within the investment strategy and advice team, which is responsible for setting the long-term investment strategy and then monitoring the key metrics for uh, long-term investment strategy for the uh, organization. Uh, before then, I had, uh, I've had some couple of exposure Within the, also within the finance industry in Nigeria, I worked with um, two financial institutions in Nigeria, worked with the bank, and I worked with also uh, a top pension fund manager also in Nigeria before I joined the company I am with now in the United Kingdom. Um, my, my education background is not far-fetched. I, my first degree I had, I studied uh, applied geophysics. So you were right by saying that my first degree was in um, was in sciences. Yeah, I studied applied geophysics at uh, from University in Nigeria, University of Technology, Akure. Studied applied geophysics after five years, I graduated and I switched over to finance 
uh, after graduation, I found out that some of the skill sets that I possess in terms of both um, numeracy skills, um, technical skills, <coughs> also find expression in finance. Yeah, so yeah, I started out my career in finance and I've been in finance all this while. I'm a CFA charter holder. I completed my CFA last year and um, um, I'm passionate about some things, couple of things. <laughs> I love sports. I enjoy, I think that's into the personal part. I I enjoy talking about finance, finance um, geopolitical, economics, um, talking about financial markets, um, educating people about it, investing and the likes. Those are my interests. I think that kind of sums it up. Great, great. Um, something that always catches my fancy or catches my interest is how people are able to switch from a background of science into finance. Uh, what was this switch like for you? And at what point did you realize that probably science was not the way for you, uh, rather, and rather finance? Uh, well, I have never seen... Um, maybe I've not seen it in that light. Like, science was never the way for me. I'll try it. I think I just found out that, okay, you have this skill set, you... You're passionate about this skill set and everything. You can as well make use of your skill set within the financial industry too. The switch is not resident in probably people in Nigeria alone because there's this issue when you talk about people switching careers. And the first thing people alluded to is, oh, it's brain drain in Nigeria or things like people that are better of being doctors, uh, counting money in the banks and things like that. That's, of course, that's a perspective and you can't rule out people's perspective. They are entitled to their opinion. But I never saw myself as switching. I just saw it as um, more like me continuing what I have, some certain skill set that I have and then applying it to an area of life. Um, as I said, I studied applied geophysics, and I still have a couple of friends. Um, some of my close friends are PhD holders, or they are PhD candidates and doing their PhD already, even in that same line currently. And we still interact. Of course, it's not something I've done over the last five, six years. Um, but... It's something I can relate to it. So in a way, it's not like, oh, science was never an option for me and everything. I just found out that some set of skills that I have from numeracy to technical ability to reason, uh, math and analysis like that, they cannot be applied in finance. And one thing about finance is that finance is a field of life that brings all other fields together. So... I see it as finance as the fundamental of every other field. So, for instance, if you are in medicine, um, you need financing in medicine. There's practically no area of life. So, if I follow my applied geophysics career path, probably I should have ended up working with um, an oil and gas company and then be, be an applied geophysicist or 
upon I head to academic path and then go for my PhD and then become a geophysics lecturer, either part, either we even school, education still needs funding and financing. And don't forget that finance is all centered around channeling the scarce resources to the aspect of the economy that make best use of it. So that that sense of asset allocation, either you are allocating it to an oil and gas company or you are allocating it to electric vehicles, of course, centers around changing the world or contributing your part to change the world. So if you have some set of skills, you find that okay, they are transferable to these fields too. So why not? So I think that's how I met myself in finance. I don't know if I addressed the question. Though. Yes, you did. Yes, you certainly did. Um, however, if I were to dig further, um, I agree with you that yes, the skills are transferable from from sciences into finance. However, the knowledge base, like the foundational knowledge for for sciences, are quite different from finance. Uh, for the sciences, we need the physics, chemistry, biology, and all. However, for finance, we're talking about accounting, commerce, um, yeah. all the likes. How were you yeah. practically able to 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 you know build this knowledge base, uh, possibly from ground level to the level of you know being a CFA charter holder with a, a science background kind of? Thank you, thank you. Um, how was I able to do that? Is quite simple. Um, I think it boils down to the fact that even while I was studying my geophysics. Uh, and I was probably doing things about tectonic plates, seismic, um, studying courses. I did some mathematics course. I did some engineering course. I did a lot of geology-related courses. And I did a um, couple of um, geophysics courses too. And then you collect surveys, you analyze them. At the end of the day, I found out that even while doing those things, I was still not detached from economics, as it were. So I've always been interested in the news. I love the news. I love to know what's going on because I think you can get a lot of information from just watching the news. And there's hardly any news segments that you watch that will not talk about business. I think even news segments have specific, news sections have specific segments that covers business, that covers sports, that covers things like that. So I think because I've always been so interested in the news, I have always found out that the major topics or the major segments of the news have eventually piqued my interest. So in a way, I was never detached from finance in it. Uh, when I when I finished school and I got a job to work with the bank, of course, I finished as an applied geophysics. And this is one of the things I tell people. Um, some of the skill sets that you need in life, probably on the job, they aren't going to teach you everything in the four walls of universities. Yeah. So I was um, opportune to be with um, some couple of interns who had 10-week internship and my firm, and I was telling them, and they were like, oh, they didn't teach us this in school. Oh, I taught in school, and this seems to be miles apart. And I'm like, yeah, it's good to feel like that. But in a way, school is not meant to teach you everything. 
School is just meant to test your capacity to adapt. Okay, so at the end of the day, it's all about what you have gone to school to prove is the capacity that you have developed or you have the capacity to adapt to different circumstances. So school is just a platform. So that certificate just means that this guy has passed through this school and learned so, 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 so. But he has shown over the course of the five years or four years of being in school that he can pick up new things, he can pick up things he has never been heard of and understand them and excel in it. That's all school is about. At the end of the day, you find out that it's not strange. You find out people that did, I don't know, I think even people that have never even touched computer in their lives, probably through their five years in the university or four years in university, are top programmers around the world today. What, uh, what does that tell you? People that have nothing related to sciences or nothing related to programming, are top programmers around the world. So it just, it's just the capacity of you to put your mind to anything that you want or you desire that is interesting. I am not a great fan of accounting. I understand accounting up to a level that I need to apply to my job, but that I can start quoting IFRS to you and everything is impossible because I'm not an accountant and I don't want to be an accountant. I just need to understand up to the extent in which the accounting is needed to be applied in my finance. Do you understand? So that's, that's it for me. So it's all about interest. It's all about knowing yourself. I know I am good technically. I know I can, I'm doing numbers. That means whether it's engineering or it's coding or it's finance, there are still numbers game and I can of course thrive in it. Perfect, perfect. Um, I really appreciate your sharing um, from your practical experience. Um, uh, if I were to summarize or to put it in other words, I would say just as we have said, there's a, it takes a lot of sacrifice, personal interest, curiosity, wanting to find out and learn about things, knowing about yourself and adapting the world to suit you. Um, thank you very, very much for that. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Looking at your job experience, you talked about working with um, Sterling Bank, you talked about working with a pension fund and now with an international pension fund uh, in the UK. And a common trade that underlines a good part of the, the work that you've done in all the institutions we've mentioned is risk analysis. Um, is there any yeah. chance you could just talk to us about risk, what risk is and why every investor should be aware of it. Uh, it's not a topic that a lot of people think about consciously, unfortunately, and um, it can have detrimental effects on their portfolios. Uh, do you mind just sharing with us what risk is and how we should look at it? Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, so let's start by stating the obvious fact that um, Many people carry out risk functions daily, much more than they know or they're probably willing to accept. I would agree that people carry out so many risk functions daily, more than sometimes they know or they are willing to accept. So um, let me give this simple analogy. Um, so we've been hearing of 
the trend, common trend in Nigeria now is Japa. It's a colloquial which means leaving the country. Okay, you're leaving the country for another country. Um, now, why are you leaving? You are leaving, uh, hoping for, hoping to get a greener pasture. So you've extrapolated the risk in Nigeria and you've asked yourself, if I continue like this in this country, there is tendency that one, I might not get a job, or some of you, some of us even have a job. We say, okay, beyond not getting a job, there's tendency that if I continue like this in this country, there is tendency that I probably won't survive, or something will happen to me, or you know, you just extrapolate a lot of things, and you just decide the next best thing is to leave Nigeria. What I'm trying to say is that. People actually carry out a lot of risk function day in, day out, than they are willing to give themselves the credit for. So you have two things. You have Nigeria as an example. You there's Nigeria, you are there's risk that you might not get a job or you get a job, and inflation or anything, whatever it is, can make you not able to compete. So you decided that hmm, I will leave Nigeria. You are also taking a risk to say you want to go to another country because nothing guarantees that you will succeed there. Nothing guarantees that yeah, you can look at statistics and see, but you can't say there is zero percent risk in leaving Nigeria for another country. You understand? You can say there is lower risk of you not getting a job. You can say there is lower risk of you um, probably being harassed by the policeman or something like that. But provided is not zero risk, like you cannot totally say you're 100% safe or you can you can say this thing is 100% guarantee. That means you are taking a risk. So we carry out risk day in day out. Day in out from taking the bus uh, to taking the train to taking all those things we do risk we carry fact our lives are evolved around risk activities or risk related activities now what is risk in a way I don't think I have a definition that I at least as related to investment investing and finance there's no specific definition that I can give now but I'll put it like this. In trying to get investment returns or in trying to manage an operations of an organization or whatever it is, it involves a certain amount of risk. So there is a degree of uncertainty. So risk is that level of uncertainty that is in either an activity or investment or any human endeavor that you can undergo or that we undergo. And that level of uncertainty now, when you're trying to manage it, that is when the word risk management comes into form. Because is in trying to manage the uncertainty that is inside the business 
that you hear of people talk about operational risk is in trying to manage the uncertainty in investments and how to mitigate the uncertainty and to an extent be able to predict that uncertainty. That's when you have investment risk. You know, if you give someone a loan today, even if it's your family member, there is a risk. You know, you can say, ah, I know. Okay, so let's, for instance, say that you borrow a very wealthy man money today. He's wealthy. Let's say it's worth five billion pounds, just for as an instance. And the man say, give me 10,000 pounds. Be like, oh, this man will pay. I probably just need to. But it's a risk. Now, what is the first risk? What if the man dies today? Now, what if his five billion pounds net worth is actually all convenanted in a debt that has senior claim to the man's assets than you? So as little as your 10,000 pounds is, compared to that man's five billion net worth, you are also, also undertaking a risk because you might not get paid back despite the fact that the man has the net worth. It's also a managing risk that you will hear that you will see banks, both in Nigeria, even here, tell you that monies that you keep with them are being insured with social organization. So there is a government bodies that, body that insures money. You have organizations like central banks, institutions like central banks to manage risk. That's why they will say if a bank collects one error from you today, for instance, in Nigeria, the, to save the bank cannot use all the entire one error out and just say they are giving it out and no. There is all the core error. There is one that needs to be kept. Yeah, cash service requirement. There is capital adequacy ratio. All of those things are factor. At the end of the day, I'm I'm sure probably the bank can use fifty cobo of the one error for business. So it's managing uncertainties. That's where risks management comes in. And those uncertainties happen day in, day out. We see them, we leave them. Um, I hope I've been able to Absolutely. at least attempt the question of where <laughs> risk comes from. You've done more than attempts. Um, if I were to paraphrase what you've said, you've talked about risk and you've mentioned the keyword being uncertainty. So in investing, we invest because we want to make money. So risk is like the possibility, the uncertainty, the uncertainty of you actually making money that you might actually lose money. Things may go the other way, uh, which is what's yeah. All right, perfect. Perfect. And now, uh, and I quickly just add that actually in investing, an investment manager will tell you that what they first do in investment is not to ask you what level of returns are you looking at. Whether it's, so we call some people institutional investors. So assuming I'm a portfolio manager today and I'm managing money for an institutional investor, or I am even managing money for uh, high net worth individuals or, or tri net worth individuals, any investment manager that is worth your annual studio will not tell you that, oh, I'm going to give you 5%. Just say, okay, tell me that you want to make 5% return. No. They always start by asking you, what is your risk capacity? So the investment managers try to define risk capacity before they define return objectives. And there's a reason for that. It's because you don't first chase returns you chase returns within defined risk capacity. 
Now, if I don't define my risk capacity, either as an organization or even as a retail investor, I'm going to try from now to limit my responses to what is important to your audience here, which is the retail investors. So investment managers don't say, oh, if you want 5%, okay, 5%. They ask you, what's your risk capacity? That means, for instance, and they use different metrics to qualify, quantify that risk capacity. For instance, they can ask you, today, let's say you are giving me a thousand pounds for me to invest for you. What level can that capital fall to that you'll be uncomfortable with? Can the value of your money at a certain time fall as low as 800 pounds? That means you've lost 200. Or the least you can allow your capital to fall to is 950. So I'm not forced chasing returns because I am so clear that in trying to get returns, I am going to be undertaking or taking on risk. So I need to first define the level of risk I think you are capable to take. Now, there's what we call risk appetite and there's what we call risk capacity. So you can say today, for instance, that I can take, I can allow my money to fall to 800 pounds. So that means I can lose up to 200 pounds on my 800 pounds. At least if I lose up to 200 pounds, I'm still okay. That means I can take a, I can, that means you are telling, you are giving that investment manager the, the opportunity or you are giving them the right to go as far as, to go and invest such that, in such a way that even if they have to lose 200 pounds, at some, at some point, at a certain point, you are comfortable with it because you know they are chasing returns for you. So what I'm trying to say is that, but now there is a fiduciary responsibility of that to that investment manager. Now, this is where I take, so I, for instance, we have talked about a thousand pounds, just to clear up what I, the jargon I said about risk capacity and risk appetite. And you have told me that you have, you can take 200 pounds loss. You are willing to take, you have, you have, you have, you have the appetite to take 200 pounds loss. But then there is a responsibility. It's the responsibility of the investment manager to look at you and say, okay, outside this 1,000 pounds, is there any other money that you have or if any other investment? If the investment manager knows that this 1,000 pounds is actually your rent money at the end of the month or two months from now, and your rent money is actually 950 pounds. But because you don't have to pay now, you are using it to invest. That investment manager has a fiduciary duty in some jurisdiction to ensure that though you have confessed with your mouth that you can take a loss of up to 200 pounds, that he himself will use his best judgment to say, this person has said, I have the risk appetite of this, but they don't have that capacity. Because if 800 pounds is eroded, if 200 pounds is eroded out of their capital, and their leftover money is 800 pounds. And between now and when that house rent is going to be due, that investment did not perform to take to, to, to bring a return that will make up for those losses. That means the capital has been eroded away. So, Joe, you've confirmed with the amount that I have the capacity to lose 200 pounds and be okay. But as look at your investment objectives, you has look at your other asset and your other uh, other things that you have in your portfolio. I say no, you don't have this capacity. So at the end of the day, if you confess your appetite, no matter how high you say your risk appetite is, 
you must be willing, and that's a mistake that people do as retail investors. Now, a professional investor manager will tell you this, but some people don't know that they need to tell themselves this when investing. Thank, thank you very much. Um, the, the retail investors listening will do well to pay attention to what you've just said, uh, that as investors, our focus should actually be on, on the risk we are employing and try to minimize the risk according to our own capacity rather than just focusing yeah. on the on the returns that we are aiming to make absolutely brilliant yeah. now if, yeah. I, if i were to just to take this a little bit further there's this common mantra in investing parlance that you know the higher the risk you take the higher the returns uh, what's your opinion on this and why could this be deceptive okay um my my opinion is that um that colloquia or that common mantra is um, is for long-term investors that knows what they are doing and not people that are playing the market for a quick gain and cashing out. The, the term is true because ideally I would have come down and say well, probably ah, that term is not true. The term is true on the long run. But if the term is true, it's not true to people who do. One thing you will notice is that one of the greatest risks a man can play with his or her money is Ponzi scheme. Is an high-risk investment. It's not even, you can't even call it investment. It's a scheme. It's like playing, it's like gambling. It's even, the, the odds are even, are even worse than gambling. If that is true, people that play Ponzi schemes should be the richest in the world. But I don't know the data. But I don't think any of the top richest men in the world um, are Ponzi scheme players. They are people that have gone into business, produce value, and then value has now been added to them, the network. And people need to understand that. The first question you need to ask yourself in any investment is how does it create value? The, for, the, the first question is not, will I get 10% returns? Would I get 5% returns? And that's why you find out that retail investors are, okay, I think I was, re, okay, I was reading something on Financial Times today. It says 80.61% of retail investor accounts lose money. Hmm. 80.61% of retail investor accounts lose money. And why is that? Because sometimes we can't just ask ourselves, they brought this thing before me. Oh, they promised you the high return and everything. Just ask the question first, how does it create value? I can tell you how Tesla creates value today. Yes. Tesla is producing cars, physical cars, 
what is different in those cars is that Tesla is not just a car manufacturing company. Tesla is going to probably be one of the biggest data company in the world because they are using the data they are collecting from their Tesla cars to actually get, you know, it's, it's, it's the information age and people are paying for information. So people see Tesla and they say, oh, electric vehicles. Yeah, they are solving a problem of climate change and the rest by producing cars and are not giving out the CO2 that the traditional vehicles emit. So they are creating value in that aspect. But they are also collecting data, which eventually, which we eventually go into driverless cars because they would have been able to map the entire world just with the data and information they are collecting. And they are improving on the efficiency of the car by knowing more. Because at the end of the day, there must be a customer for any product before you can call it a product. The customers must consume it or must make use of that service. And then they must derive satisfaction from it. After that, they will part away with their money. And that is when value has been exchanged. And is in trying to fulfill, that's why you notice that all these top companies are always so focused on customer satisfaction because they know that is how you create value. And that is what eventually gets added back to you. You can talk about market cap of trillion dollars company. They're just creating value. So one of the questions retail investors need to answer is, how does this investment create value? If you can't start answering that question, there needs to be like probably a rethink before undertaking that investment. So when you borrow government money, for instance, and how do you borrow government money? Government issue bonds, they issue treasury bills. Um, in UK, they call it guilds and treasuries. Now, when government issue bonds and treasuries, they collect money from people and give them treasury certificates. And ideal government will go and use that money that they've collected to do capital investment in the economy, either by building hospitals or by constructing bridges or constructing facilities that the populace will eventually make use of. And then they will be taxed for it. And that tax, which is government revenue, will be used to pay back investors who had invested in government bonds, which were used to finance that project. So if you can link it together, you should be asking your question. You should be asking yourself some questions if you should actually go or undertake in that investment. Um, thank, thank you very much. I mean, you've just shared some damning statistics, which is that eighty percent of retail investors lose money. That is quite damning. yeah. I was reading it on yeah. I was reading it on Financial Times. I believe oh. they're probably referring to UK and US investors more. Just imagine they're talking about that in even economies that are meant to be developed. Exactly. Look at the population in developed economy. Imagine that statistics in the same developing economies. 
it's amazing. It's it's mind-boggling to think of what the statistics would be like if we were to apply it to an emerging market uh, like Nigeria. Yeah. And you've also asked a very important question that I think retail investors need to think about each time before they buy any company, which is how does this company create value? If you are buying a company, what is the value creating um mechanism exactly what what how does this company practically create value i don't want to mention the names of specific companies now on the nigerian stock exchange that a lot of people chase after just because they feel it will rise in price it will give them a quick buck but if that company is not creating any value then you are just you know fooling yourself by buying that company eventually it's going to go pop at the end of the day now into my next question um Howard Max, which is a, a well-known investor that I follow, is one of the founders of uh, Oak Tree Capital Asset Man- Capital Management Company. Uh, he's talked about hmm. risk. He's an expert when it comes to risk, and he said it's difficult, if not impossible, to quantify risk to a specific number, either before the fact hmm. or after the fact. Um, I, I'd like to know your thoughts on how retail investors can measure risk or how they can you know, quantify risks to be able to say, okay, this is more risky than this. So let me put my fund in the less risky um, venture. How can we have a measure of risk? Uh, <laughs> the demand that you just mentioned is, is probably, Oaktree Investment is one of the respected um, fund managers in the world. And um, I think there are no truer words than what you have said. How do you quantify risk? Uh, let's just be clear. I work with an institutional investor company where on the buy side of investment um, as an institutional investor. Uh, and we have models, all sorts of models that we look at, all sorts of metrics that we look at to manage large funds. So well, the concept of the models Maybe I'll try and think about some of them and put them down here. Because at the end of the day, I don't expect an institutional investors to be to be attached to sophisticated models. I don't know what I guess, like the models that we use for models we use for uh, institutional investor, you know, be expecting so you look at this value at risk, you know, it's not possible for a retail investor. But one of the things that you can Pick top of the head for retail investor is um, value creation. The first risk you are undertaking is you don't know how the investment creates value to generate returns. Now, for instance, you go to eatery, right? Or restaurant. It's, let, let me just ask. Okay, I'm assuming you do. Mm-hmm. Now, L- let let me ask you. How do you think those people make money? Please, just in a second. How do they make money? Well, the, the, I believe they make money by the margins. Um, the classier the restaurant is, the more people. No, 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 no. No, let, let, no, let, no, don't let us complicate it. Okay. I'm not even saying how do they make profit. Okay. How do they generate revenue? Ah, how do they generate? They sell food. They sell, yes, they sell food and collect money for. for they sell yes. food. That is it. It's it. Let's not try to. Let's be as simple as yes. possible. 
How do they make money? They sell food. Yes. That's all. They sell food, they sell drinks, and they try to satisfy their customers. That's how most restaurants make money. Yes. Exactly. So you can explain that. Now, if you are trying to invest in a particular company, you should first ask yourself, what is this company creating? And how do they generate revenue? How does Amazon generate revenue? They have a platform through which retailers and companies can put their products and that was how they started eventually. They started from books. You advertise your books. The man was passionate about being able to buy a book anywhere on the go. And he started with a company called Amazon where he displays books and people can buy it. They started with books and eventually started listing other products and they turned to a trillion, trillion dollar company now. So it boils down to the ability to explain the process through which this company is creating value and generating revenue. If you, have, if you can do that convincingly, you've started mitigating your risk. You can define that. The second thing is to ask yourself, do people even know about this value creation or are people aware of this business? Now, it is two questions in one. If, if it's a business that is phony in an industry that is popular, people will not be aware about it. By phony business, I mean business that you cannot, people, you can't just, you, it doesn't make sense. But if it is also, a, it could also be, a, for instance, just imagine people that invested in Tesla when it was still selling for $50 per share to now that it's over $700 or $800 per share. Now, the second part of it is that it's, it's possible that you have a good business out there that people, not everybody knows about it. Yes. In fact, when, when Tesla listed, I can't recall, they listed list for around $200 or less than that. Imagine investors that bought it then when it got initially listed and the amount of money they made, thousands of dollars. Yeah. So the fact that a company is not known, maybe not known, probably could be a startup or a company that is just coming up. You need to be able to define that. Now, that, that said, so one of the things retail investors should pursue is the ability to define the business in which the company is in, the ability to define the, what I would call the, um, the economy relative to the company. And I, and I will ask you this, and you are going to help me answer this. Okay. Now, you can, you can you, as you observe, it's been a bit tight, right? We are in global economies. You can call it technical recession. Mm. And what I mean by global economy is when U.S. is nearing recession, there are Q, Q2, is it Q2 or Q1? I think Q2 financials, Q2 GDP rate, uh, GDP growth shows that the economy has shrinked for two successive quarters, which in economy starts recession. The economy is in the recession. They were trying to define it as technical recession and everything, but let's just see the economy is in a recession for, for, for saying it. Now, in a recession, technical, what it means is that economic growth is slowing down. In fact, there is no economic growth. 
And um, if you add inflation on top of that, that's a double whammy for people. Mm. Now, let me ask you, one of the things that happened in a recession is that people cut back on spending because at the end of the day, they don't have much to spend money on. Do you think people are likely to buy toothpaste in a recession or cloth? Which product do you think they are likely to buy? Toothpaste. Correct. And that's that. And why did you think so? Um, toothpaste is an essential. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. You have to use it. You have to brush your teeth. No matter how bad it is, there's only there is only a limited number of days that you can go without food and water. You have to eat. It is when you have surplus that you will say, I need to buy a new cloth, right? Mm -hmm. It is when the the economy is booming and your bank account is booming that you say, I think I need to change my car. I need to buy a new phone. So if you can answer this simple question from yourself, you can know which part of the economy or which segment or which sector you are expecting to thrive. It doesn't need sophisticated models. So you know that discretionary products like, let's say, fancy cars or fancy makeups and things like that, people have tendency to cut back on that because they have lesser amount to spend. But they must eat. If toothpaste was selling for two pounds before, and because of recession and inflation, the price went to 2.5 pounds, they will still buy. So you can call them recessionary proof products like that because you use them day in, day out yourself. And you can't do without them. Because such products, consumer staple, consumer must buy them. When you notice that your yeah, 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 economy is getting better and everything, that is mean that means that the time people will have money to buy discretionary products, products they won't have bought on a normal day. Why? They are no longer in a recession. The economy is expanding. Their pockets is their pockets are seeing is seeing the impact of the of the booming economy. And then they will start buying discretionary products. That's when they can say, oh. I think I need a new iPhone. I think I need to change this, my stuff. And so those are how you manage risk. You notice where you are in the economic cycle. Where are people likely to put their money at this time? I've said that, and I'll round up with this last part, which is that I think it still relates to what I said first. It is not all about returns and returns. People chase returns. Why you find that that? You find that many people don't get returns because they all we all chase returns. Nobody asks themselves, do I have the capacity to take this risk? You know, for instance, that when I borrow, when government borrow, borrows money from me, and how does government borrow? I mentioned it earlier. Instruments like uh, bonds, treasury bills, they call it guilty, here. Eh? They call it um, Bundu in Germany and things like that. Government can easily print money and pay me back. That's a lower risk investment. They can print money and pay me back. When I 
when, when a company borrows money from me through what they call corporate bonds, the company have, has a higher level of risk than government. So if government can easily pay me back, that means government is as higher credit worthiness than a company that is issuing bond. That means I should be expecting higher returns from government than investing in a corporate bond. Corporate bond, you borrow company money today, they will tell you a social date, they pay you back your money. Now, this is where it diverges when you are now investing in a company stock. If you are investing in the company stock, they are not paying you back your money anytime in the future. There is no, there is no what you will call um, what you call end of life for your it's to perpetuity. So if you invest in a stock today, the only way you make your money back two ways: the company, okay, probably three ways. Not done in not done mostly in Nigeria, but some companies do it too. But it's common here. And that's the third way I wanted to mention. The first way is dividend. The company pays dividend. But dividends are not constant. For instance, during COVID, several companies found out that their revenue, net income, dropped. And when company revenue dropped, because there is a level of capital or capital investment that the company needs to be pushing year in, year out to maintain the hedge they have in the market to be able to run operationally. When they notice that, when companies notice that their revenues dropped, even companies that are, de that are declared dividend in 2019, some of them said we won't be paying it. So dividend have some level of profitability. If you invest in companies like Coca-Cola, Microsoft, um, G and the like, those companies have history of paying dividends. True, bad, good, and everything, they will always pay dividend. So that means when they pay dividend on their income or profit they made for the year, you will get, that's one of the ways. The second way is that you bought the company shares at, let's say, a pound or a naira, and then the company does well in the market, and the market is, what I mean by market, I don't mean I mean like, the, the, everybody suspects this company is doing well and they, are, they start trying to buy into the company by trying to get their shares and your share appreciates. That's a form of price appreciation. And your one Naira that you bought then is now worth two Naira. You have made the 100%. So if you are trying to sell your shares today, don't forget you are going to sell it for two Naira. You made 100%. But you, 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 getting the cash is no longer in value because cash, is, cash in it is not, cash in it is not, is not value. Cash in it is not returns. So you also find, you still need to find an investment to plow back the two naira you've made, the two naira you've got, which is one naira returns. So you can make money through dividend. You can make money through, um, through price appreciation of the stock because the value. So let's say I, have, let's say I invested 1,000 pounds in the company and then the company made my price appreciate to 2,000. 1,000 pounds is now worth 2,000 pounds. That's how to make money or to increase your net worth. The third part, which is done in some developed economies, and not all companies does it, but companies that are cash-rich, like Microsoft, like Amazon, and the like, they do Facebook and like they do what they call share buybacks or share repurchase. So let's say you bought their stock for let's say fifty dollars now, 
they can decide that they want to buy back some of those shares. Let's say you bought 10 shares from them for $50. That's $500. That was how much you bought it. The company can decide that next year they want to do share repurchase and they are buying back, let's say, half of your shares back. Do you get? They will say they want to buy back half of the, the five shares, but they are not going to buy you back at that fifty $50 entry price. They might probably say they are buying you back at $100 per share. So your five shares alone will now be worth $500, and you can still retain $5. And the beauty of share repurchase is that it increases the market value of the company after it has sold off, bought back those shares. They put them back in what they call treasury stock. So one, you've got cash back through share repurchase. Two, your shares that are still left in the company are worth more. Those are ways you make money. So the ability to understand these simple facts, simple things you can see online, will go a long way to help people. Sorry, I've spent a lot of your time. I, I think that was very, very necessary. I think that was very necessary. Um, I'll just recap a couple of things or rephrase a couple of things that you have said. Um, so for the retail investor listening, a way they can incorporate thinking about risk, thinking about, um, you know, um, not just being conscious about the profits now, thinking about the fact that I can make losses too in these investments and a way to safeguard about this, against this is to be conscious about the company. So you should, before you buy any company, you should think, what, the, what does this company do? How does it create value? Who are the customers That's of this question. company? How does yes. this company actually make money? And are there any changes on the horizon that may affect how yeah. this company makes money? Um, where are we in the yeah. market cycle? So all of these things, if we can answer all of these questions confidently before buying... And they are company, difficult questions yes. to answer. They are yes. just things you live today that you don't pay attention yeah. to sometimes. Mm. So yeah, th please go ahead. Th that's, just being conscious of all of this is a good way to, to manage risk in your portfolio and not to buy companies that are moribund or companies whose comp customers are already on the way out. Okay. So add one thing to what you just said now. Yes. It, it makes sense what you just said now. It's a good rapport. So let's imagine that you've been using the product for a while. And how do you manage the risk? For instance, I use a particular toothpaste for a while. I've been using it for two years. There's a form of customer loyalty to it. That means that when I go to any um, any um, grocery store, that product is what I'll be looking for to buy. Do you understand? And I just noticed that two weeks ago, something happened. The product, I bought the same product at the grocery store and it was bad. I felt okay, maybe it was, it was just one off. Two weeks later, I did the same thing, it was bad. And there happens to be family members and friends too that use the same product and they are complaining about it. There's a trigger for you that that company, if you're invested in it, they, are, they will start experiencing loss. Or Sorry, they will start experiencing revenue loss. And what do I mean? That means that people will start saying that, ah, okay, you had people, you had, for instance, Netflix. There was a time Netflix was growing and growing and growing and growing and growing for almost three, four years. They were getting number of customers' growth was astronomical. Then Amazon Prime, Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, and everybody just keep coming with their products. And before you need Netflix was losing customers. And people started complaining, this Netflix try and everything. And it was not only you. 
you are not the only one using Netflix. You complain about Netflix. Two days, two two minutes ago, you yourself and a friend are also in the conversation. You hearing them complain about Netflix. Before you hear it, you, hear, you read the review that Netflix has lost. That is, those are all pointers that if this company doesn't do something, they'll start losing revenue or they might not grow. And you know the company is not growing. It's hard for it price to appreciate. Those are those are linkers that you can pick up and say something is wrong. Also, just imagine that the company just comes into four and starts showing, you know, Netflix buy the right to put movies and start showing probably latest movies. Immediately they out, they bought the right there. Like before you know, everybody started recommending. Ah, won't you download that? Those people that are subscribing for Netflix before we start saying, okay, I want to go for this. That's how you know whether a company has tendency. Just the little basic, just start from the things you use in your house. The things you use in your house, how do you value them as someone? You have people you interact with, how do they value them? Can you say that ah, the way you are, you are the optimum value they are getting from this, that people are also getting from and the product and revenue of the company will grow? Or can you start thinking, if, if me, even I am thinking of cutting back on this? So that gives you a link into where the company's revenue and direction of growth is heading. Perfect. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, framework that you've given us. That even in our daily lives, in our day-to-day routine, there are things that we can think about with investing, with risk management, and how to manage uh, portfolios better, even as retail investors. Uh, just yeah. as we begin to wind down the conversation, um, you are very passionate about financial education, just as you have said, and uh, I've made um, mention of the platform. It's called the Discover, the Discover program or the Discover series, which is targeted at um, candidates of the CFE exam, helping them to improve their CSE scores and you know get better experience with that. Um, I, I would like you to just say a few words about... Um, what drives your passion and what, what uh, motivates you even for this financial education and your drive to disseminate information? Thank you for the opportunity. Again, um, I, first of all, I think was it Bill Gates or one of these uh, prominent um, individuals that said um, success is a lousy teacher. And um, failure sometimes can be the best teacher. I wrote my level one and level two of the CFA and passed at the first attempt. And I was hoping to break record and just pass level three, two at the third attempt. It's a very small category of people that pass their level one, two, and three at all at first attempt. When I did level three, I didn't pass at the first attempt. And it wasn't because I didn't prepare, of course. It was because I didn't strategize during the exam. Well, I've read, I've done everything. I didn't because the exam was different in level three. Mm-hmm. And I found out that that same year that I passed, so I had to attempt the exam again. I think I didn't even wait. I, the exam result came out, I think, January or February. And there was another window in May, which was like the first time CFA was starting the computer business. And I, I just attempted it in May and I passed it. And I passed, I saw my result in August. So I came out almost 10 weeks or 12 weeks later. So um, I also noticed that that same year, 2021, the password was quite low. 
four levels, level one, level two, level three. And people are trying to say some of these passwords, we have never seen something this Password was so ridiculous for CFE. We have never seen this before. This of CFE password used to be higher than this. What happened and everything? And I felt like, okay, we cannot complain about it, but what if I try and do something about it? And I found out even that it wasn't because I was I didn't read, study for the exam. I studied, but I didn't pass on first attempt. What happened? I didn't plan. And um, though I just started discover officially. But I've always been actively involved, even right from when I was doing level one, to help people that are coming behind, teach them, okay, this is what the exam is about, this is what to know and everything. And that, that at that point, I noticed that trend too. People are not as informed as they should be about exams. People are not as informed as they should be. It's like when an information overload age, and sometimes if you're not careful, you will be lost in the maze because there is this, there is that. How do you determine which is important? So I decided to do something about it, started discover officially uh, to help people. Something I've started about four years uh, in terms of mentoring them on the program. I kind of made it official and then started mentoring people on the program, started asking them, okay, this is what you should do. Um, brought in some people and were very fortunate we had a very interesting lineup of uh, previous CFA chatter with us, like, sorry, people that have passed through the CFA exam, current chatter with us to come talk to people about the exam and everything. So that's, that's been it for Discover. Um, we've had three series now, level one, level, 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 started with the general level for everybody to just pass information, basically what you need to know in each level. I had a mini session with some level three candidates then and then we've had for level one and level two this year. So it's born out of um, failure. It's born out of um, feeling that there's so much information out there. And sometimes what people, why people fail is not because they didn't study or because they didn't put in effort. It's just because they weren't giving tips or they weren't well informed. Yeah, thanks. For, for somebody listening who wants to, you know, maybe take part or listen or watch the previous sessions that you've had in the Discover series, how can you they go about this? Um, it's available online. We have three videos on YouTube from the Discover series for CFE. I think two. One is supposed to go online next week. That's the one we had in July. Our time to quickly put it online, but... I'm going to try and put that online. I can easily share the link, but if they look for um, Caleb Fowler line and the videos I've posted, I think I've shared some of those videos online. And, then, and um, we're still open to do some sessions also this year. Hopefully, God help you. Um, I, I assure you that um, I'm one of those that have benefited so far from that session, um, from those sessions and uh, Hopefully, I look forward to even the sessions you have uh, coming up or lined up in future. Um, yeah, yeah. Any final words or any final thoughts for the retail investor listening to you? How can they improve their practice? You've shared a lot, but any final thoughts just for the retail investor? Um, final thoughts. Um, first, thank you for taking time to listen to me. <laughs> I don't know if I have... Uh, one way or the other, I did some, at least ask 
cause you to start asking some questions. I think it starts with asking questions. And when we start asking questions, we start knowing what is important. And if I can get you to start asking questions on your investment today or things you are hoping to invest in, I think um, I made an impact in your life. Um, but what I'll just say is that um, don't start by chasing returns. Start by defining your risk. Every investment has a level of risk. And you can't run away from risk. It's good to invest. It's good to, in fact, investment is the only thing you've got to create intergenerational wealth transfer or, yeah, to make something come from you. But why chasing investment, chasing returns? The first thing we should be chasing is risk. Define your risk capacity. Start by asking yourself, how does this company create value? Do I understand it? People fall. If people ask simple questions sometimes, they find out that common sense is more common than the top. Thank you so much. Absolutely brilliant. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having, uh, for creating the time. Uh, I, I remember reaching out to you and it's just been a smooth conversation so far. We really, really appreciate your time. Oh, nice, God. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be with you. Absolutely. Thank you, sir.